Chad has one last sermon for us. I don't know why, but he asked to preach the day after Christmas. Did you do sermon prep yesterday on Christmas? Okay, I love you. Go get them, buddy. The Lord's going to give me grace. We're going to we're going to get through this. We won't be here for three hours. Um, like he said, uh, preaching today is the first time I've ever asked for a preaching slot. Most times, Pastor Aaron has just said, "Hey, are you available on this Sunday?" And here's the text that I want you to preach. And I'm like, "Yeah, I'm there." Um, but I but six months ago, I saw that this day was available, and I said, "That's mine." I know I'm just the intern, but please, can I have that date? I want to preach a farewell sermon to the crossing. And if I would have had the foresight, I would have realized how emotional I was going to be all week. Uh, sermon prep has been really hard because every 30 minutes it was interrupted with tears. <laughs> I'm thinking about this moment. And then um, various things throughout the week. I got a text from Jack that... His son said he's going to miss me. And I got um, some Christmas ornaments from Beck and Lindsay for our kids. And it just, I went up to the office and I started crying again. Um, man, I thought this was, I thought I got these tears out the last sermon I preached a few weeks ago. Um, so sorry. I sh- don't need to be sorry. It's how God made me, I know. I really love you guys, and I just am so thankful to God for what He's done. I really, if you know anything about me, I hope you believe this, I don't want today, I've prayed and prayed and prayed, I don't want today to be about me and Audrey and our kids. Today is about Jesus Christ, just like every day of our lives, just like every Sunday that we gather. It's about the Gospel of Jesus Christ and what He's done for us. And we can be thankful for the gifts He gives us, like the Crossing Church, like our friends, like our spouses. Um, but for the Christian, we every day, it, it's all about Jesus. So that's been my heart. Um, I haven't known, I struggled with this weight of what to preach on for my last sermon to you guys. And I'll acknowledge there is this unrealistic, self-imposed weight. This has to be the best sermon I've ever preached. And after a few slices of humble pie over the years, even though I'm still a young man, I've learned that most sermons aren't grand slams, to use a baseballism. Um, what I've learned from these guys and being around this church is the goal that I, while I'm up here is to be faithful to this, to tell you what this book says. It's not about me. It's not about preaching a grand slam. I just want to tell you about the love of God and be faithful to His Word. And so by God's grace, I was freed from that weight. And I decided, well, Romans 8, verse 32 is my favorite verse in the whole Bible. It's been the sermon that I've preached to myself more times than any other verse. And I've uh, used it in many sermons that I've preached as a, as a side note, as a, another parallel truth. But that's what I'm going to preach this morning is Romans 8, 31 through 39. Um, Romans, I don't know if we're allowed to have favorite books of the Bible. It's all God's Word, but Romans and John for me have been the most soul-sustaining, uplifting, wonderful books. And Romans chapter 8, um, 
not to sound super spiritual or arrogant, but I have memorized it and I commend to you all to memorize the entire chapter, Romans 8. Um, Before we read it though, uh, let me say a few more things. We've just celebrated Christmas yesterday. I hope you all had a great one. We did. We had our whole family over all day. It was awesome. It was a day of joy for us and for many of you, but a day of pain for many people as well. I know people can feel really lonely in this season. Uh, There's a couple in our church who have lost a son this week, so I'm sure this was a hard Christmas for them. But whether or not you experienced joy or pain or a mixture of both of those, the objective reality of Christmas is the incarnation. Jesus Christ was born into the world as a human being. He lived a perfectly sinless life. He preached the kingdom of God and He did miracles. And He eventually died on a Roman cross, receiving the wrath of God for the sins of all who would believe. Jesus Christ rose again. He ascended to the Father and He is seated at the right hand of God, ruling the universe and interceding for us. And He's coming back. Jesus Christ is coming back someday. The world thinks we're crazy for what we believe, right? Because of our sexual ethic and all these other things. They think we're crazy for that. They don't realize that we believe Jesus Christ is going to split the sky someday riding a white horse with a tattoo on his thigh that says King of Kings and Lord of Lords and a sword coming out of his mouth. I'm happy for you to call me crazy. I believe that with all my heart. And now we live in between the first and the second comings, or we could say the first advent that we celebrated this whole last month and yesterday, and the second advent. And life on this earth is hard. It can be really, really hard. We come into this world naked and screaming, and many of us will leave this world in much pain and weakness. And in between that time, we experience broken hearts, Loss of loved ones, trials at work, trials in marriage, frustration, betrayal, anger, assaults of sin, the lusts of the eyes, the lusts of the flesh, the pride of life, to name a few. As my old dad says, tongue in cheek, life sucks and then you die. (laughs) He doesn't really mean it. But at times, it is hard. You guys know that. And the question that we have or are or will ask throughout this life is, am I going to make it? Or am I going to make shipwreck of my faith? Is God powerful and loving enough to keep me? Can I lose my salvation? Will I, in the end or on the journey, be condemned or separated from God? And the testimony of Scripture in many places, but especially in Romans 8, 31-39 is, The Gospel of Jesus Christ is proof that God eternally and invincibly loves His people. We are going to make it. You're not going to make shipwreck of your faith. God is powerful and loving enough to keep you. You can't lose your salvation. You won't, in the end, be condemned or separated from God. So before I read Romans 8, 31-39, we need context. You guys are all used to, we go through books of the Bible here at the Crossing Church, so we're always used to having some context. Uh, Verse 31 drops us into the middle of one of Paul's thoughts, so we need to know what came came before it. 
and I'm going to briefly summarize the first eight chapters. I believe Paul is referring back to everything he said in the book of Romans up to this point, but specifically Romans chapter 8. In the first few chapters of Romans, we learn that the Gospel reveals the righteousness of God. That God is completely righteous and all mankind falls short of His glory. But in the Gospel, the righteousness of God is manifested and given through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And faith is how a person receives justification from God by His grace. A person is justified by faith alone as Abraham was. And since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So even though we inherited sin from our first father, Adam, and were born dead in our sins, we receive an abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness through Jesus Christ who gives us life. So we've been set free from sin and are alive to God and slaves to righteousness. Paul says, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Chapter 7, he says, we have died to the law so that we may belong to Jesus Christ and so that we may bear fruit for God. Yet we still live in this struggle between sin and the Spirit. But Christ Jesus will deliver us from this body of death. That's chapters 1-7. through Now, as some call it, the great eight. He starts by saying, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because God has done what the law couldn't do, He sent His own Son to be a man and to receive the condemnation of the law for all who believe. So we as Christians live by setting our minds on the things of the Spirit. We belong to Jesus Christ and the same Spirit that raised Him from the dead will raise us from the dead. And the Spirit that has been given to us is the Spirit of adoption by whom we can cry to God as Father and we are also fellow heirs with Jesus Christ. The sufferings of this life are not worth comparing to the glory of the next life. We will feast in the house of Zion, won't we? Even though we and creation are groaning to be set free from this world, we have hope that someday we will. And until then, we're going to feel weak. And at times, we're not going to know what to pray. But the Spirit helps us by interceding for us according to the will of God. Now, I know I said I'm preaching verses 31 through 39, but I need to read verses 28 through 30. I think Paul is really referencing these in this passage, and they're so good. They need to be read, not summarized. So, verse 28 And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his Son, in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Aren't those amazing verses? Verse 28 is also probably one of the most famous verses in the Bible, a verse I've preached to myself many times. I think 29 and 30 are also just as famous though, but let me say a few words about each. 
verse 28 is amazing, and I think it's a parallel of what we're going to see in verse 37. I'll talk about that in a little bit. For those who love God, many of us, most of us in here, all things work together for our good when we've been called according to His purpose. That is an amazing promise. Everything we go through, much of it in this life, is going to be really hard. God is working for good. And then in 29 and 30, uh, many theologians would call this the golden chain of salvation. God foreknows a person. I don't really, I I found myself wrestling, do I want to enter the debate or not? I don't really want to, but I'm just going to share my cards and the pastor's cards and many of the pastors in this network's cards. You guys mostly know this. But foreknowledge doesn't mean God looked down the corridors of time and saw that you were going to be humble enough and smart enough to put your faith in Jesus Christ. When the Bible talks of knowledge, it talks of a loving and a choosing. And that's what I believe. Not because of anything we've done for reasons we don't know. It's above our pay grade. God has foreknown His people. And therefore, He's predestined them to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And those whom He's predestined, He's called. And those who He's called, He's also justified. And those who He justified, He also glorified. Those things all come together. Nothing can come in between one of those things to prevent that from happening. That's why Paul can use the word at the end glorified in the past tense, even though it hasn't happened to us yet. It's as good as done. We will be glorified if we've been born again. We will make it there. And I needed to say those things because like I said, verse 31 starts with, what shall we say to these things? So before I read, in showing honor and reverence for God's word, will you please stand and I'll read verses 31 through 39. I was going to make Daniel come up and do it, and I didn't give him a warning, but I'll love you enough not to. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I come before You just humbled in worship at who You are and what You've done for the gift of Your Son and the gift of this church. It is such a joy, Lord, to to gather with this church and sing praises to Your name and worship You and hear Your Word preached and to preach Your Word worshipfully. Lord, I pray that it would be Your Holy Spirit in us who's 
causing Christ to be glorified, that you would increase and I would decrease, and that today would be like every Sunday at the Crossing Church, Lord, just hearts on fire for you and what you've done for us. Hearts uh, rooted and grounded in the Gospel, captivated and mastered by your Word and the realities that we learn from it. You are great, Lord, and greatly to be praised. And You have proved Your love for us in the Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray that we would all rest in Your love this morning and worship You for Your love. That You have loved us in eternity past and You will love us in eternity future. We praise You, Lord. We love You. We give thanks to You. And pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. Audrey kind of spoke prophetically to me this week as I had this weight of preaching the best sermon I've ever preached because it's my last one as the intern here. And she just said, and this sounds pompous, I didn't think this, but it was still good of her to say, <laughs> Chad. You don't cause people to worship God. God causes people to worship God. That's the Holy Spirit's job. And so, um, I pay that forward and just say that that's been my prayer. And I, I've said it before in sermons, but um, the application of every sermon that our pastors have preached and I've ever preached at least and at most is praise God. Praise His holy name for who He is and what He's done for us. So, I ask you guys this morning to, to really consider the time of the, the Word being preached as worship. I am genuinely worshiping my heart out as I do this, and I hope you guys will join me in that as we hear the truths of God's Word. So let's worship Him for His eternal and invincible love. Uh, the passage can be broken into two sections underneath the heading of the love of God, or if you have the ESV, I didn't need to change the subtitle, it says God's everlasting love. And the two sections that it can be broken into is the work of Christ and the love of Christ. The objective reality of the work of Christ and the subjective disposition of the love of Christ. So before we really look at the, the work of Christ, though, we have to consider verse 31 first. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? What shall we say to the things that have come before this verse in the whole book and especially in chapter 8? It almost feels like words we can't find the words to speak of the realities we've read about in Romans 1-8. through I read it again this morning in my devotions. But worship compels us to try and find the words. Does it not? Don't we write songs and hymns and poems and utter prayers and spontaneous praise because of the truths revealed to us by God and Scripture? What shall we say to these things? Praise God. God, You are great and greatly to be praised. I know my words don't do it justice, Lord, but I have to say something in me. If I don't, the rocks will cry out. If God is for us, it could be translated, since God is for us, who can be against us? 
We'll see questions like this throughout the passage in verse 33. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Verse uh, 34, who is to condemn? Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And we'll say, wait a minute. Lots of people can be against us. Even Satan is called the accuser of the brethren. The implication then is that no one can succeed in their attacks against us. Even if they succeed in taking our physical lives. If the Almighty, all-powerful, all-knowing God is for us, no one can successfully be against us in any way that harms our eternal destiny. If you've been foreknown, you will be glorified. And so the rest of the verses show us how God is for us. First, by the work of Christ. Verse 32. Let me just read it again. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? That is an amazing verse. All things. You guys know how we feel about the prosperity gospel here at the Crossing Church. I've gotten on the soapbox many times. Obviously, it doesn't mean that you're going to get the Lamborghini. You're going to get the huge mansion. Even you're going to get some of the good things that you, you're longing for. What does all things mean? Everything we need to go from foreknowledge to predestination to calling to justification and glorification. Everything you need to be conformed to the image of Christ is yours. 2 Peter 1.3 is a, is a great uh, cross-reference to this. He says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to, to His own glory and excellence. Everything we need to glorify God in the ways that He has ordained. That's the all things. This verse is known as an argument from the greater to the lesser. If God has done the greater thing, giving His Son to forgive our sins and propitiate His wrath, He will do the lesser things of preserving His children in His love so that the sacrifice of Christ isn't in vain. Collindale Life Group, you're going to get a quick rerun here. Has anyone ever heard of Half Thor Bjornsson besides Spencer? Nobody. World record holder in the deadlift. If you don't know what a deadlift is, it's just picking up weight off the ground. This guy can deadlift 1,104 pounds. 1,104 pounds. I saw it on YouTube. You can look it up. None of like. Probably the five strongest guys in here couldn't even lift that together. If Half Thor Bjornsson can deadlift 1,100 pounds, he can certainly pick up a 200-pound dumbbell that you and I would think is impossible. Let me give you another one. Elon Musk. Richest guy in the whole wide world. If he can pay cash for a $200 million Malibu mansion, he can afford a Happy Meal at McDonald's. If God gave His Son, how will He not also with Him graciously give us 
all things. John Flavel says it like this. He was a Puritan in the 1700s. How is it imaginable that God should withhold after this spirituals or temporals from His people? How shall He not call them effectually, justify them freely, sanctify them thoroughly, and glorify them eternally? How shall He not clothe them, feed them, protect, and deliver them? Surely if He would not spare His own Son one stroke, one tear, one groan, one sigh, one circumstance of misery, it can never be imagined that He ever should after this deny or withhold from His people for whose sakes all this was suffered. Any mercies, any comforts, any privilege, spiritual or temporal, which is good for them. God didn't spare His own Son. He didn't withhold Him. And this promise has been foreshadowed since the first book of the Bible. The language of this verse is reminiscent of Genesis 22. Many of you will remember the story, especially if we've preached through that a couple years ago. God tells Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. The son who had been promised by God and the son that Abraham and Sarah had waited for for 25 years. God says to Abraham, take your son, your only son Isaac, who you love, and go and offer him as a burnt offering. I'm a dad. I can't imagine that. But Abraham believes God. God's going to do something. So Abraham takes Isaac up a mountain. He builds an altar. He prepares the wood. He binds his son Isaac and lays him on the altar. Could you imagine being Isaac in this moment? What is going on, Dad? Abraham grabs a knife, lifts up his hand. You can picture the glint of the blade as it extends above his head. And just as he's about to plunge it into his son, an angel of the Lord says, Stop! Stop! The angel says, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And then Abraham looks up and he sees that God has provided a ram caught in a bush by its horns. And he goes and sacrifices the ram instead. Isaac was a, recipri a recipient of salvation by substitution. And Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide. And about 2,000 years after this incident, God did not withhold His Son. His only Son, whom He loves dearly. He gave Him up for us. The blade did not stop until it took the life of our Lord. Romans 8.32 has been the, the verse that I've preached to myself more than any other verse. It has sustained me through many valleys of shadows of death, and it will for you too. Memorize at least this verse, preferably the whole chapter. So what else does the work of Christ imply? Let's move on to verse 
33, the work of Christ prevents anyone from charging God's elect with sin that results in condemnation. Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. So here we, we have a scene of the heavenly courtroom. And again, like verse 31, there are those who will bring a charge against God's elect, His chosen people. But it will never succeed in condemning them. Remember Romans 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The world will bring charges against us. Satan will also bring charges against us. And his charges will probably be true. But it is God who justifies. You guys remember Rich's sermon from a few months ago. He ended with that amazing illustration holding up pieces of paper and the accuser saying, look God, look at what this sinner has done and most likely it's going to be true. And God can rip it up and say, yes, they did that. But it's been paid for. I've justified them. Sin is chiefly and ultimately against God. We know one of the most famous sins in the Bible of King David committing adultery and murder. And he writes Psalm 51 after he commits that sin. And what does he say? Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. We can only say we've sinned against each other because we've sinned against God. We've not treated His people, people in the way we should treat them. We have sinned against God. But for those in Christ, the penalty has been paid. We have been justified. And to be justified means to be declared righteous in the sight of God. Fully, legally exonerated in the divine courtroom based entirely on what Jesus has done in our place. And therefore, if God doesn't condemn us, no one else can. And we struggle with this. I struggle with sin every day. I've sinned this morning. I'm sinning in this moment. We're all sinning. And sometimes we can let this guilt come on us. Maybe it's not from the enemy. Maybe it's not from the world. Maybe it's from our own selves. Saying, oh, I've sinned. God doesn't love me. But He does. He loves us. Smitty and I were on a bike ride the other day and he gave me this awesome picture. Law is like this. You mess up and you say, oh crap, Dad's going to kill me. Gospel says, I messed up. Better call Dad. Run to God when you sin, you guys. We run to Him and say, Lord, I've sinned. And I thank You for the forgiveness You've given me in Jesus Christ. And I'm feeling condemned in this moment, but I know You haven't condemned me, so I can't even condemn myself. Verse 34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Jesus Christ died to save us from the condemnation of God. The price has been paid for us. Jesus has died as our substitute. You guys know, again, the soapbox I've gotten on before, but there are Christians and churches who deny the reality, the core reality of the Gospel. That Jesus has died in the place of sinners. They say, that's crazy. God wouldn't do that. That's divine child abuse. Without penal substitutionary atonement, it's a fancy word I'm not trying to impress, but just the fact that Jesus took our place, there's no good news. There's no Gospel. 
And the arguments are, yeah, well, he just died to be an example to show us the, the extent to which we should go to love people. And sure, that's true. Or he, he died to, to be a victor over sin and Satan, and that's true. But picture the, the, the beams of the cross with me. The vertical beam is the substitutionary atonement. The cross doesn't stand up without that beam. And then on the horizontal beams, yes, he, he died as an example. He was a victor over sin and Satan. But the good news, the great news of our salvation is that He died in our place. He took the condemnation of God so we don't have to. We can trust that God is completely for us because He poured out all of His wrath on His Son for us. And Jesus Christ's resurrection is proof that God has accepted payment. That justice has been satisfied. That the debt has been paid. And not only has Jesus raised from the dead, He ascended. He's seated at the right hand of the Father, co-ruling the universe and interceding for His people. This is an amazing thought. Intercession means this. When a third party comes between two others and makes a case to one on behalf of the other. So some of you have interceded for your kids when you go talk to their teacher about their grades and stuff. Uh, a sports agent will intercede on behalf of an athlete to a sports organization. One author says that the intercession of Christ could be said as effectual advocacy. It's effectual we know it's going to go well. So it's not as if the work of Christ on the cross was insufficient <clears throat> or that God the Father is still struggling not to be mad at us for our sin. <clears throat> Christ's intercession, one, one author says, is the moment-by-moment -moment application of His atoning work. Christ is love, lovingly and joyfully reminding our Father that our debt has been paid. And surely the Father's delight is to say yes and agree with His beloved Son's pleading on our behalf. So that's the love of God proved in the work of Christ, an objective reality. And next we turn to the verses that tell us of the love of Christ, His subjective disposition towards us. Verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Trials will happen. I've said that and you know it. Life in this age will be really tough. Everything Paul mentions in this list are experiences he was familiar with, except for the sword. That was still in the future for Paul when he wrote this, but he would eventually be beheaded and would experience the sword. But all these experiences cannot separate us from the love of our Savior. And based on verses 28 and 37, getting a little ahead of myself, we know that God uses these things for our good and for His glory. Paul goes on to quote Psalm 44.22 in verse 36, For your sake we are being killed 
all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Ever since there has been a people of God, whether Israel or now the church, God's people have suffered and been killed by the people of the world, by the powers of the world. But that should be expected. Jesus said, do not be surprised if the world hates you. It hated me first. And the world only hates us because it hates Jesus. Our lives are to be pleasing sacrifices to the Lord. Paul says to the church in Philippi, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial altering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. A few chapters later in Romans, Paul says, I appeal to you in light of the mercies of God. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is your spiritual worship. For many Christians, it has meant dying a literal death from persecution. And aren't those stories so inspiring? You've, you've read the missionary stories. you may maybe seen the movies. Aren't we inspired when we see someone who's willing to leave everything in the comforts of their home and go to a people group who is apart from Christ and they give everything, literally their lives, for the Gospel of Jesus Christ? Many of us, though, we won't die from persecution, but we will be hated. Even if it's just people hating us on the internet because they're too scared to hate us face to face. We are hated because of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if we would follow Jesus, He says we must take up our cross and follow Him. Our lives are to be echoes of the way Jesus lived His. Even the word Christian, as many of you know, was originally meant to be a derogatory term for followers of Jesus, meaning little Christs. Now, we, we, you all know that we aren't saviors. Hopefully, we don't have a savior complex. Jesus Christ is the Savior. But I heard one author, pastor, say it like this, His cross is propitiation. Our cross is propagation. That just means to spread the news. He died to forgive sins. That's why He took His cross. We take our cross to spread that news. No matter the cost, no matter what it takes, no matter the relational conflict that may happen because we love someone enough to tell them about their sin and their need for a Savior. We will all face suffering in this life. Sometimes directly because we are Christians. Sometimes just because we live in a sinful world and we have sinful hearts. But there is hope. Verse 37, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. That could be translated, we keep on being conquerors to a greater degree. Or we keep on winning a glorious victory. Parallel to verse 28, <clears throat> God uses all of our suffering for our good and for His glory. No matter what we face, you guys, no matter what we face, we know that through God's love for us, proved in the giving of His Son, we will not only overcome it, God will use it to conform us more into the image of His Son. One pastor says it like this, in the end, God makes every dagger a scepter in our hand. And I would add to that, when we, when we get there on the great day in the Feast of Zion, 
we will take those scepters and the crowns and whatever God has given us in this life and we will throw it at His feet. And we will fall on our face. And we will say, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Thank You for the life You gave me, Lord. You used all my suffering to be good for me, to make me cling to You. I wouldn't change it. This should galvanize our faith as we walk through suffering. Many of you are walking through it right now, and we're all going to go through it someday. And why does God do this for us? Because He's lacking in glory? And He needs us to add to His glory? No. Because He loves us. Why does He love us? Because He loves us. Because He is love. I don't know. Praise Him with me. Nothing can separate us from His love. Verse 38 and 39. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Verses like this make me cry. I don't think Paul is trying to be too specific when he uses all these words. I think his main point is nothing, no thing in all creation can separate you from His love. But I'll say a few words about him anyway. Death nor life. Our state of existence. Death doesn't separate you from the love of God. In fact, God has turned the scariest thing for many people in the world, death, as the best thing that happens to a Christian. You, you get to be with Him. You, you die, I think you probably close your physical eyes and in the moment you have the beatific vision. There He is, God in all His glory. And nothing in life, nothing good that life can give, nothing bad that life can take can separate you from the love of God. Neither angels nor rulers. Nothing in the spiritual realm. Angels or demons. I think this probably just means the bad demons and the demons who are disguised as an angel of light. But maybe it means good angels too. I don't know why they try to separate us from the love of God. I don't think so. They can't. Not the present. Not things to come. Nothing within time. Nothing we're going through right now. Nothing we're going to go through. Powers. Paul couldn't think of a pair here, so just powers. No world power, no spiritual power, no power. Nor height, nor depth. Nothing as high as the heavens, nothing as low to the abyss. You get the point. He's making nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. People have argued, well, but that's still, it's not saying me. Like, I can still separate myself from the love of God. Read it. No thing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus, your Lord. Not even you. John MacArthur says if we could lose our salvation, we all would. We would. See what kind of love the Father has given to us? that we should be called children of God. And so we are. 
And as His children, we can never be separated from His love. The Gospel of Jesus Christ is proof that God eternally and invincibly loves us. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I offer Christ to you. Repent of your sins. That means turn away from your sins. Acknowledge that you're a sinner. You've fallen short of God's glory and put your faith in Jesus Christ. Nothing you can do can save you. You don't have to wait and clean yourself up and then come to Jesus. That's actually antithetical to the Gospel. You come to Jesus. You don't have to raise your hand. You don't have to say a secret prayer. You just acknowledge your sin and say, Jesus, I need a Savior and you're it. I believe that you died for me and you were raised for me and you will be saved. And that's proof that you've been in the love of God from before the foundation of the world. For my brothers and sisters in Christ, I was going to say for the crossing, but I have some visitors here who don't attend. So for all my brothers and sisters in Christ, what worship this should cause. God loves us. And we can't be separated from that love. How are we going to get through this life? the trials and the tribulations and the loss of loved ones and the fear about leaving the church that you love so much. Are we going to make friends? Is He going to provide a home? Well, He loves me. And He's going to graciously give me all things that I need if He's given me His Son and for you too. Don't you guys desire to know and love this God who has loved you in this way? Don't you want to give your life every day to saying, God, help me grow in my understanding of your love for me, what is the, the height and the depth and the breadth and the width of your love? We can spend, if God gives each of us 99 years, we can spend 99 years trying to grow in our knowledge and we will have scratched the surface. We get to spend eternity growing in our understanding and love for Him and what He's done for us. We should live in our, as a, in our identity as children of God. You are a justified child of God. He eternally and invincibly loves you. No one can charge you. No one can condemn you. No one can separate you from His love. So when going through trials, and even life in general, <clears throat> will you have absolute confidence that if God has given His Son, his only Son, whom He dearly loves, to die for you and for me, to remove the biggest obstacle, His wrath and our sin, He will bring you through everything else. I promise you, He will bring you through everything else. <clears throat> I'm done. I'm getting off notes here. I love you guys. And I've wanted my last sermon to be about the Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, God has done so much in me and Audrey through your love, your love for the Gospel, the way you've walked alongside us, the way you've encouraged us to pursue Jesus Christ as our greatest treasure. And I commend Him to you as you've done for me. Um, I'm going to be melodramatic, Chad, like I am. If I, for some reason, never see some of you ever again, we will feast in the house of Zion. We, I'll see you there because He eternally, invincibly loves you and He loves me. So, see you in 70, 80 years. We'll have a big party. I love you guys with all my heart. Keep going after Jesus Christ. 
Nothing else will satisfy. Keep living to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the glory of God and the joy of His people. Do that through loving Him, living in gospel community, and leaving a legacy for those who don't know Him. Let's pray. Oh, I can't pray. Lord, I love You. We love You. Thank You for forgiving our sins. Thank You for this church. Be glorified in our lives. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.